We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Joan Alanto. Don Palumbo. What a moment this is. We're on stage at the legendary Bell Mayhus Auditorium. The stage of this historic theater has been graced by iconic musicians and comedians, big-time people with Netflix specials and worldwide tours. And here we are, a couple of little people who stuttered in a basement in Minot, I got to tell you, getting to this point seemed like the whisper of a glimmer of a dream of possibility back when we sold our first 50 tickets at the Speakeasy here in Bismarck. Yeah, for sure. Two and a half years later, man, I got to tell you, Bismarck, you all have really shown up for us over the years. We wouldn't be here without you. Thank you. You have our utmost gratitude and a big thanks Big thanks out there to everyone who keeps on listening and to everyone who comes out to share an evening of Midwest murder with us. And we wouldn't I, be here if not for that. Exactly. And, and Bismarck, thank you. I know I've seen uh, Louis Black on this stage a couple of times. I've seen uh, Steve Earle a couple of times on this stage. And I usually sit in the middle. And so it's really surreal to actually be on this stage. Um, so it's all thanks to you guys. Yeah. And that's all I can say because otherwise I get emotional. I don't do well with that. So yeah. just know it hits hard. Yeah. So thank you. We'll save the crying for later. Yeah. But yeah. it does. It's we're, we're very humbling, very proud to be here. Thank you. Also, we're uh, super grateful to all the fans of, of Midwest Murder who take a little bit of time to review us. If you haven't reviewed Midwest Murder on iTunes just yet, we would really love to hear from you. And we'd love to read your review during a live recording. Don, I'm kind of curious. What are people saying about Midwest Murder these days? Well, <laughs> gotta love this. <laughs> Somebody, uh, the name is name you can read. Thank you. I, you guys stumped me so hard. It's thank you, but name you can read. That's the name of this person. Five stars. Oh, so good. Wow. I drive almost 700 miles in four days for work. My God, you must be tired. And my friend recommended that I listen to you too. I love true crime and this by far is the best. On my way home from McCluskey, I picked up where I left off on an episode before work. I started laughing so hard. I almost had to stop. Who buys a chainsaw or digs a hole in February? You not only keep me very entertained, but awake. So thank you for all you do and for the suggestion of eating at shots is so good. Yay, all right. Thank you, McCluskey. I've been there once or twice. I've been to shots once or twice. Ugh. Yeah, it's you know, the ranch. It's, I, I can't get into it. Uh, Midwest Murder Fanatic, also a name I can pronounce. Thank you. Five stars. Binge worthy. I was told about this podcast two months ago, and yesterday I finished all 76 episodes. Oh, my gosh. 
Okay. Okay. I love it. I love a good binge. You've got to be sick of us by now. Um, Yes. In two (laughs) months, I binged the entire series. I was strictly a quote, insert other podcasts that I won't name listener, but I love this one so much. I had to become a subscriber. Don and Jonah have an amazing ability to pull you into the story, but also insert levity when needed. Thank you. That's awesome. I also yeah. appreciate they didn't plug this whatever other podcast while <laughs> reviewing us. So that that was touche. We appreciate that. So again, you can review us on iTunes or Spot or Spotify. We really we really do appreciate that. Uh, be sure to please check out our merch. Midwest Murder is independently produced, so merchandise goes a long way to support what we do. We're always looking at adding new designs, and all of our merch is handled locally with a business in Minot, so we're, we're happy to support local with that. You can find us at www.toomanyshirts.com. That's T-O-O, manyshirts.com, slash Midwest hyphen murder. We are brought to you tonight in part by Efforts Law. Efforts Law is a government affairs and consulting firm specializing in association management, executive search, and lobbying service. Their team can elevate your business's public and government relations profile or help you with strategic planning and daily operations. That's Efforts Law. And Efforts Law doesn't leave a website or a phone number because that's how much they cost. They care about their hourly rate just as much as they care about your innocence or helping your business. In fact, I have it on good authority that one of the lead people at Efforts Law, she only had to take the bar exam one time. Ooh. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. Just the one bar exam under her belt. So I've heard that's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. So big thanks to Efforts Law for sponsoring Midwest Murder this evening. On this episode of Midwest Murder, we're going back all the way to 1964. It was the very first year in which the Surgeon General warned Americans that smoking cigarettes might be dangerous. Just might. And might, might be dangerous. <laughs> I emphasize might and 50 years later, we started to believe him. Let me tell you, nobody wanted to hear that shit. Especially the ad execs, yeah. And the pregnant moms. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. And, and people on an eight-hour flight. <laughs> yeah. In 1964, U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act into law. He also declared a war on poverty and followed through with the late John F. Kennedy's plans for social programs designed to help lift Americans out of poverty. How's that working for all of us? It's going well, Remains Remains as yet to be determined, we'll say. As yet to be determined. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. receives the Nobel Peace Prize. At age 35, he was the youngest person to receive the honor. Beatlemania. That's a real term. I don't think anybody's... Nobody's nobody's questioning it. Right, it's a real term. (laughs) I I was questioning it. I thought I made it up, but I didn't. (laughs) No. (laughs) Beatlemania started in late 1963 and was in full force in 1964 when the Beatles landed their first number one hit in the United States. Did your ego take a hit when you realized you didn't make that up? No, actually, I just lost my place and I was (laughs) trying to cover. But thanks for blowing my fucking cover, Don Palumbo. Sorry. Jeez. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Enjoy your British invasion. Keep going. <laughs> well, in the United States, we called it. Yeah. Anyways, Beatlemania. They landed <laughs> their first number one hit in the U.S. with I Want to Hold Your Hand. 
The Beatles in 1964 were also paid a then-record-setting $150,000 by baseball team owner Charles Finley for a concert at Municipal Stadium in Kansas City. That's a little less than $1.5 million today, and that's a record that stood until Led Zeppelin came along in the 70s. Wow. According to some reports, not a single juvenile crime was reported in New York City on the night of the Beatles' first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show in February of that year. It was watched by more than 70 million people. Okay, hold on a second. Hold on. I want to poke a hole in that because either the cops were busy or the, the juveniles were busy. I mean, I, not it, a single it juvenile go, it could go either crime way. reported. It could go so either way. The Beatles stopped crime in New York City, at least for the night, okay. is what it sounds like to me. <laughs> okay. The G.I. Joe action figure made its debut. Other popular toys of 1964 included Rock'em Sock'em Robots. I, just, I can't believe 60 years later, that thing is the same as it was in 64 when it came out. And they still, kids still get that for Christmas. Yeah. Also, Barbies, the board games Mousetrap and Scrabble and Tiny Tears Dolls. <laughs> Three North Vietnamese torpedo boats attacked the U.S. destroyer Maddox in the Gulf of Tonkin. This led to much more significant U.S. involvement in the Vietnam conflict, although it wasn't until 1969 that Americans were drafted into the military as part of the war effort. And in 1964, the Boston Strangler, Albert DeSalvo, is captured. He purportedly raped and killed 13 women. He was later stabbed to death in prison in 1973. An interesting note on the Boston Strangler, investigators of the case later suggested the murders were not committed by one person because the victims were from different ages and ethnic groups and had different MOs. Yeah, that one had, that case was super interesting because it had, like, they don't even think that he did any of them, I think, or at one point, or it was, or he was caught later. Not in, the, not in the Midwest, so I can't, I can't right. recall. But, I, have, yeah. I have a hunch there's probably a pretty damn good true crime podcast on it out there somewhere. Not ours. Not unless we go on vacation and cover it. It was late May of 1964 when kind-hearted school teacher Gary Smock didn't return home as expected. A married father of two, Gary, Gary Smock was heavily involved in the community, active in church and among the favorite educators at Plymouth Junior High. Although Gary and his family lived in Plymouth, Michigan, they were staying with in-laws in Allegan, and Gary had meetings with the Chamber of Commerce in Battle Creek regarding plans for a Church of God Youth Convention. It was around 6 p.m. on Friday, May 29, 1964, when Thelma Smock last heard from her husband. When the meeting with Battle Creek officials went long, Gary made it clear he needed to be home in time for family supper. But it was about an hour-long drive to his in-law's house. Gary called Thelma to let her know he wasn't going to make it in home in time for dinner, but he would be home soon. Unfortunately for the Smock family, soon never came. Even though Thelma Smock contacted police later that night, this wasn't the type of missing person call that sent alarm bells ringing back in 1964. Thelma could make an official report the next day at the station. Early on the following morning, Saturday, May 30th, in Elkhart, Indiana, a small town just over an hour south, the body of a gas station store clerk was discovered 
by a group of fishermen who stopped for fuel. Charles Snyder, the attendant, had been shot twice in the head with a 22 caliber weapon. Charles was the opening shift worker, which started around sunup, so it appeared this was a fresh crime scene. The fishermen called 911, and police responded quickly. Since the murder was so recent, law enforcement believed there was still time to catch the killer with some good old-fashioned roadblocks. The roadblocks, known in the modern era as checkpoints, were set up as were set up really fast on all the major highways and thoroughfares. But it's not like police had anything to go on other than look for anyone or anything that seems suspicious. Search vehicles at your discretion. Now, I got a little hung up on this because I felt like, well, shouldn't you just search every vehicle? But you can't. I asked a cop about it. I asked a lawyer about it. Hint, hint, efforts law. <laughs> um, I did. And, and really, you, you can't just search everyone. So well, there has to be some level of suspicion to search some calls. So it's really discretionary. I don't want to call it out, but I'm guessing there was some... No, actually, I do want to call it out. There, I'm sure it was 1964, so easily some racial profiling. And it's like, hmm, that one, that one looks interesting. We'll take that one. Right. Anything. Anything. They, 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 they searched a bunch of vehicles, of course, but it, again, it wasn't like you should search everybody. Therefore, let's not hold it against them when I tell you that one Larry Rains was waved right on through a roadblock with the dead body of poor Gary Smock stuffed into the trunk of Gary's own car. Because Larry looked pretty normal and average. Absolutely. What we might be able to hold against the police in this situation who waved Larry on through is the very obvious smear of blood on the vehicle's bumper. Now, law enforcement didn't have any reason to know Larry Rains. But damn, if they knew anything about Larry's life up to this point, police might have been prompted to take a closer look at the cool, calm, collected 19-year-old who casually drove through the roadblock with a dead body in the trunk of a stolen car. It also played into Larry's favor that this was 1964, and word didn't travel quickly back then, especially over state lines. Although Larry Raines had no adult criminal record, he did have an impulsive propensity for violence that now saw him on the tail end of a nationwide serial killing spree that was years in the making. Larry Raines was born in 1945 and raised, I use that term loosely here, in a violently unstable and abusive home in Woodward, Michigan. At just under two years younger than his brother, Danny Rains, the boys grew up close to one another. But the extreme circumstances of their childhood created an obsessive, competitive, and jealous love-hate relationship between these brothers that is unlike anything we have ever seen on Midwest Murder. Contrary to the typical nuclear family of the era, Danny and Larry's mother worked outside the home, and she worked the night shift, leaving their father as the primary adult in the home. I refuse to use the word caregiver in this case because their father 
was a terrible waste of existence. Danny and Larry had a younger and older sister, making them both middle children, and each of them suffered abuse from their father. Worse than a mean drunk, Thorain's father was evil, encouraging the brothers from a young age to fight, always pushing them to the edge against one another, tormenting his children any way he could find, punitively dishing out punishment. This man pitted his own sons against each other in bloody fights over quarters, sometimes a few pennies, and he didn't allow them to lose easily. He gave them alcohol and supplied weapons to escalate their duels. And we're talking about grade schoolers. In 1954, long after the damage was done, the Rain's father abandoned his wife and children and took off to Florida with another woman where he found his dream job, working at a gas station. At some point, the boys were sent to visit their father, and he told them to leave. Life was anything but normal for the Rains brothers. They continued drinking and aggressively escalating their love-hate relationship long after their father's departure. Larry later said, quote, I used to hit Danny with boards, throw knives at him, shoot him with bows and arrows and shit like that. At the age of 13, Larry started fooling around with the 23-year-old single mother next door, spending most of his time at her place. I'm sorry, he was 13? He is. Okay. Yep. Despite okay. that relationship, Larry eventually became involved with a girl more his own age named Kathy in the early 60s. Again, closer to age in him and his brother. God, at first I thought you meant in her early 60s. And no. I was like, yeah, whoa. No, yeah. <laughs> no. Whoa. Thank you okay. for clarifying. Whew. No, she was pretty close to uh, him and his brother in age. Yeah. Speaking of his brother, Danny also became interested in Kathy. Luckily for the Reigns brothers, or not, Kathy was into both of them. And this love triangle only fanned the flames of their jealousy and aggression. In 10th grade, Larry dropped out of school to begin his criminal career, as one does. A number of petty crimes and fights gradually turned into something a little more serious in 1962 when he and a friend stole a car and were quickly caught. Larry was offered a deal from the DA. Join the U.S. Army and the charges will be vacated. Larry accepted. I, I think those deals were really a good idea. I think they happened a lot. Yeah. They were or were not a good idea? That was sarcasm. Okay. They were not yeah, a good I, idea. No. I can guarantee Efforts Law would have got this guy a better deal. Yeah. I bet Efforts not Law Not that is... Efforts Law practices criminal <laughs> shit, but I'm just saying. I, I bet Efforts Law is loving all of the, the plugs. <laughs> so when Larry accepted the deal, somebody was pretty sad about that choice. Do you want to take a guess who? No. Kathy. Mm. Kathy was really bummed out about Larry's choice because she favored Larry over Danny, but that love didn't prevent her relationship with Danny into blossoming into something a little more serious. 
Soon after Larry shipped off to basic training, Kathy, still in high school, was pregnant with Danny's kid. Those two would be married with three children. In high school? Well, eventually. Oh, okay. Eventually. This was the first one. Yeah. Like, He's I mean, out was, of high school. It was the 60s, but I mean, good God. Yeah. Like, La- uh, Dan- Danny's about 20, 22 at this point. Oh, She's okay. later in high school. Right. No, I mean, no judgment. Yeah. It was just... No, it happens, yeah. It's just concerned they eventually, for They eventually work. get married and have three children, but yes, only one child in high school. It's important to know. Sure. So you could say things weren't going in Larry's direction. His alcohol abuse wasn't left behind in Michigan, and a series of aggressive incidents culminated in Larry violently assaulting another service member who he suspected of stealing a bag of chips. For Larry, this warranted an assault with a knife. It also resulted in his discharge and return to Kalamazoo in mid-1963. And let me tell you, there's not much left for Larry in Kalamazoo. But that's where they shipped him back to. And that is where Larry reignited the older woman fling from his teen years. But when he asked her to marry him, she refused. The rejection pushed Larry towards suicide in December of 1963. He attempted to suffocate himself himself by inhaling exhaust fumes, but the effort was prevented by police. Larry was placed in psychiatric care at the Kalamazoo Regional Psychiatric Hospital, where he was kept for 10 days before being discharged. While there, the head psychiatrist who interviewed Larry diagnosed him with a sociopathic disposition. Far be it for me to think that should have kept him at the hospital for more than a week and a half, particularly given his history of violence, but 10 days later, he was let out. Larry's departure from the hospital sent him wandering aimlessly across the United States as a hitchhiker. He had spent time down in Florida and across the country in California and Nevada before making his way back to Michigan where good-natured Gary Smock picked him up on the highway just outside of Battle Creek in May of 1964. It was an act of kindness that sadly cost Gary Smock his life. It was around 5 p.m. on Saturday, May 30th, 1964, when law enforcement responded to calls of an abandoned Chevrolet near Kalamazoo, Michigan. The patrol officer immediately noticed bloodstains on the bumper, papers scattered throughout the interior, and he called for a tow, reporting his discovery to the station. At the same time, Thelma Smock happened to be there filing an official missing person report. Sure enough, the bloodstained Chevrolet belonged to 30-year-old Gary Smock. Gary was found in the trunk lying face down in a pool of blood. He had been shot in the head just below the ear. His autopsy later confirmed the killer used a 22 caliber weapon, and a search turned up a fair amount of evidence and revealed several missing items. A cord was wrapped around one of Gary's hands. His shoes and watch were missing. A palm and fingerprint were lifted from the car and determined to not be Gary's or anyone else's from the Smock family. Another 22 caliber bullet was found on the floor of the car along with Gary Smock's empty wallet and his checkbook with a check written to 
cash on Friday in the amount of $11, which is like 6,000 bucks today. So not exactly a small amount. Or no, did you, I, did you legit look it up? No, no, no. Okay. It's, it's, it's really okay. like $106, but still. Okay. According to witnesses, Gary's car had been there for about six hours. The medical examiner estimated the time of death to be 15 to 20 hours before his body was found. Investigators quickly connected Gary's disappearance with the death of gas station employee Charles Snyder. The men were killed in the same fashion, likely with the same gun. The murders appeared to be motivated by robbery. Another witness reported seeing Gary Smock's vehicle in Kalamazoo at around 11 p.m. Friday night, further suggesting the killer went south toward Indiana where Snyder was murdered. A possible third victim was linked. 20-year-old gas station attendant Vernon LeBen. He had been shot and killed with a 22 caliber weapon back on April 6th. LeBen worked along the same route where Smock was last known to be driving. Vernon LeBen was robbed and shot in the head in the gas station where he worked. He was an active duty Air Force member stationed at Fort Custer in Michigan. He was found still alive the day after the shooting and taken to the hospital. But sadly, he never regained consciousness. Even though police were diligent in their immediate investigation canvassing, building timelines of the victims' lives, cross-referencing fingerprints. They linked ballistics between each murder. Their efforts produced no major leads or suspects. Still, it didn't take long for the killer, who we know as Larry Raines, to reveal himself. In the days following Gary Smock's murder, Raines showed up at the home of an old acquaintance, Arthur Booth, Raines emotionally confessed to killing several people. Following his confession to Booth, Raines intended on seeing a priest that night and then taking his own life. But Arthur Booth managed to call police and tip them off. Raines was arrested that night without incident on the evening of June 4th at Arthur Booth's home. He was wearing Gary Smock's watch and shoes. He readily admitted to killing the school teacher. Larry Raines surrendered a 22 caliber pistol and he had 15 cents in his pocket. There was an odd calm to Larry Raines. No resistance. He seemed eager to put forth his guilt, but the ease with which he was captured was nowhere near as shocking as the revelation Larry Raines shared with police during his ride to the station. Riding along in the back of a police cruiser, Larry Raines, without being prompted, openly confessed to murdering four other people and then asked to speak with a priest. The guys taking him to the station couldn't help but wonder who the hell is this guy? He was calm, and he looked like a nice, clean-cut kid. It was just after midnight when police made the arrest. After arriving at the station, Larry met with a priest for about an hour, and then he was advised of his right to an attorney, which he waived before admitting to the murders. He was arraigned by 4 a.m., where the judge again 
reminded Larry his right to an attorney. Raines said he did not want one and went on to give his complete and recorded formal confession. Following the failed attempt on his own life and stint in the psychiatric ward, Larry hitchhiked the country throughout most of 1964. One man had picked him up near Death Valley on May 23rd and kept talking about the fact that he had no money, which annoyed Reigns, so he shot him. That man's body remained missing for over two years. His next victim was another gas station attendant in Kentucky. Reigns openly admitted to the murder of Vernon LeBen and gave details of Gary Smock's last moments. Gary Smock stopped to offer Reigns a ride. Upon getting in the car, Larry immediately pulled the gun and forced him to drive onto a country road. Reigns robbed Gary of $3, ordered him into the trunk, and told him to be quiet. But when Gary started thumping and yelling from inside the trunk, Reigns stopped on a quiet road outside Kalamazoo, tied Gary up, and shot him in the head. Larry had to fire his gun twice because the first shot missed. Afterward, Larry Reigns simply closed the trunk and went out for a hamburger. That's the part that makes it worse. I agree. Like, it's one thing to take someone's life and, and to just, you know, take a human life, but it's a completely other thing to just go on about your day and just have an appetite and just go grab a, go grab a hamburger for 29 cents probably in 1964. But, like, like that is... It's creepy. It's creepy. You're just going to go eat, eat a burger and fries. You got a dead body in the trunk, a guy that you just killed. So after he had his burger, he Act drove... like it's Nothing. Nothing. Then he drove to Indiana. That's where he ambushed gas station attendant Charles Snyder in the early morning hours before driving back to Kalamazoo. According to Larry, getting through the roadblock was simple. He just acted at ease and they told him to move on. After that, Reigns ditched the car around the same place Gary Smock had picked him up. He hiked around the forest for a few days before arriving at Arthur Booth's house where he was finally arrested. After the confession, prosecutors contacted the Kalamazoo State Hospital Medical Superintendent, Dr. Clarence M. Schreier, to conduct a psychiatric evaluation. Six months earlier, during Larry's initial stint at that hospital, it was Dr. Schreier who diagnosed Reigns as a sociopathic personality. The doctor arrived at the station at around 9 a.m., and just prior to the examination, Larry Reigns said to the assistant prosecutor, quote, You mentioned something about an attorney. I think maybe I better have one. Larry's request was denied at 9 a.m. because... According to the assistant prosecutor, there was no magistrate to assign an attorney until 9.30. Evidently, waiting the extra 30 minutes was a mathematical impossibility. <laughs> a two-hour psychiatric examination followed the denial. Reigns was charged for the murder of Gary Smock. The other cases remained pending. His trial started at the end of September 1964. Larry Raines entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Psychologists testified for both sides and were divided over whether or not 
Larry Raines was a sane person. Defense argued the murders were caused by an insane rage as a result of his abusive father, himself a gas station attendant who bore a resemblance to several of Larry's victims. This did not convince the jury. Raines was convicted for the murder of Gary Smock and given a life sentence. Larry Raines went on to appeal his conviction based on the fact psychiatrists examined him before he was properly represented by an attorney. In 1971, Larry Raines won his appeal and with that, a new trial. However, it quickly became clear to Raines his insanity plea was weak and the evidence against him insurmountable. Therefore, he agreed to plead guilty on one condition, a name change. An agreement was made, a new life sentence was given, and Larry Raines changed his name to Monk Steppenwolf. (laughs) Monk Steppenwolf, based on a novel by German author Hermann Hesse that he really liked. Okay. Of course, this this does predate the Born to be Wild song we're all thinking about. Right. Not linked to that. So he agreed, hold on. So he agreed to plead guilty if he could change his name? Yeah. Yep. That was it. I'm pretty sure the paperwork was a lot easier in 1964 or 1971 to change your name than it is now. Way easier. He didn't have to. And we are in 64. So you're right there. Yep. No, but we're in 71 at this point, right? Well, that was, yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. When he won his appeal, arrested in 64, when he got his right to an appeal was in 71. Correct. Yes. So, so then he was like, no, no, it's fine. It's cool. I'll plead guilty. I just want to change my name. He's like, you guys totally screwed me over by not letting me talk to an attorney before evaluating me. You admitted your fault. It's totally fine. It's fine. I just just want to change my name. Steppenwolf. I want to be this. I want to be known as this cool bastard monk Steppenwolf. Yeah. Yeah. So you nailed it. So I mean, if that doesn't speak insanity, I don't know what does, but like, whatever. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to stick up for him. No, but seriously, I mean, I could have mailed him paperwork. Like, so with Larry Raines, officially now monk Steppenwolf and rotting in prison, it would seem our story is complete. I hate when you do this. But when are things ever as they seem? Throughout the back half of the 1960s, and particularly after winning his appeal, Larry Raines had received a significant amount of public press, and one person in particular seemed determined to create their own bloody spotlight. As Larry Raines started serving his life sentence, Danny Raines started to lose his wife along with his grip on repressing a violent nature. Kathy, who once dated both Raines brothers, always harbored stronger feelings for Larry in spite of her three children and marriage to Danny. After the trial, Kathy and Larry became pen pal lovers. No, monk. 
pen pal porn. No, is what Kath, they were doing. Kathy, Kathy and so, Monk became. Yeah, Monk. You're right. Well, Kathy and, Kathy he, well, well, they became lovers before he was Monk because oh. he wasn't Monk until '71. Oh, they okay. were. All right. They were doing pen pal porn in the late '60s. Prior to, but yeah. So soon yeah. it would be Kathy and Mr. Steppenwolf. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Or gotcha. yeah, we'll see. Okay. Then. In 1968, an 18-year-old woman was attacked by a man at gunpoint. The man forced his way into her car and began driving to the outskirts of town where he planned to sexually assault her. Only, things didn't go as planned when his would-be victim escaped. She later identified the attacker as Danny Rains. Danny was sentenced to four years in prison for felonious assault. Within a few years, Kathy filed for divorce. The divorce was finalized in 1971. Danny Rains was released from prison in 1972, just one year after Larry was awarded his appeal. Upon release, Danny followed in his father's footsteps, not just as a gas station attendant, but also as a vile, malignant human. A month after Danny's release, women in the area of Kalamazoo started to disappear. It began in March of 1972 with 29-year-old Patricia Hauk. Hauk was assaulted and stabbed to death in a grocery store parking lot while putting her 17-month-old son in the car. The boy was left to wander aimlessly until an elderly woman found him the next day and called police. The child had blood on him, and a search for Patricia led police to find her body behind the independent elevator company building. Patricia's husband had reported her missing the same night of her disappearance. In mid-July, the decomposed bodies of two young women were found in the back seat of an, ab- of an abandoned Opel Cadet. That's a German hatchback family vehicle of the era. The car was traced to the daughter of a Chicago police detective who went missing en route to visit her brother in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Fingerprints helped to identify Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup, both 19 years old. Because of the decomposition and presence of foreign contaminants, an autopsy was was unable to specify the cause of death but ropes around their necks made strangulation most likely. The women had been dead for nearly two weeks, and given the full tank of gas in the vehicle, police believe they encountered the killer not far from where their bodies were found. Investigators considered this incident was likely related to the Hauk murder. All the victims had been similarly tied, but the girls from Chicago were too decomposed and contaminated to determine if they had been raped. On August 5th, 18-year-old Pamela Fearnow went missing while hitchhiking not far from Western Michigan University campus. Following the discovery of Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup back in July, authorities had focused their investigation on service stations in the immediate vicinity. By late August, this put police on to gas station attendant Danny Rains. They noted his felony abduction charge. Then, police received an anonymous tip. According to the tipster, a 15-year-old runaway named Brent Coaster 
was heard talking about the killings. When police learned Brent Coaster had been working with Danny Rains at a gas station, they brought both men in for questioning. While Danny Rains was uncooperative, 15-year-old Brent Coaster, who stood over 6 feet 5 inches tall, crumbled under the pressure and impending consequences of his dark choices, not to mention the promise of lighter sentencing. Finally, the grim truth was revealed, at least the truth according to 15-year-old Brent Coaster. The product of an alcoholic father and schizophrenic mother, Brent ran away from home. He had been wandering for some time when he met Danny Rains at the gas station and Rains befriended the kid, gave him a job, and offered Brent a place to stay. Not long after becoming Danny's roomie, Rains offered him another opportunity, rape and murder. Coaster then relayed to police the details of the three murders he committed with Danny, as well as the story Danny told him about killing Patricia Houck. If you become someone's roommate, those three don't have to go together. You don't have to partake. No. You can just be the roomie. Just be the roomie or just GTFO when that last opportunity comes up. Time to go. Yeah. I mean, my my life sucks, but what you're saying is even worse. I feel like I could suck less. Yeah. Yeah. According to Coaster's story... Danny Rains had watched Patricia Houck enter a Topps department store. Topps was a regional discount chain store from the era that offered pretty much everything but groceries. Driving a blue Chevy Corvair van, Rains parked next to Houck's vehicle after she went in and waited for the ambush. When Houck returned and put her son into the front passenger seat, Danny Rains pounced on her with a knife forcing Patricia into his van where she was bound and raped. Rains then tried to move Patricia to the front of the van. She started fighting, and he strangled her. Patricia Houck reached up and scratched Rains across the face. She struggled so fiercely, the two fell out of the van onto the ground. That's when Danny Rains plunged the knife into her back so hard it nearly pierced Patricia's stomach but it didn't seem to have much effect. So Rains fatally twisted the knife before wrenching it out. When he looked up from the bloody chaos, Patricia's son was standing there crying. That poor baby. Oh my God. Danny figured the young boy wouldn't remember anything and left him there as his mother lay dying. After sharing this hideous story with Brent Coaster, Danny Rains gloated over how well it worked and suggested they do it again, together. He said they could grab a girl, rape her, rob her, and kill her for some inexplicable reason. Brent Coaster agreed to Danny's plan. They assembled a personal murder kit that included knives, trash bags, and ropes, and then went cruising for victims in Danny's Chevy Corvair van. Now, it's safe to say these are probably the creepy assholes that gave vans a bad name. (laughs) 
But their first victims weren't found out cruising. Claudia Bidstrup and Linda Clark came right to them at the Sprinkle Road service station at around 1.30 in the morning on July 5th, 1972, where the two men had a trap waiting for their first victims. The women pulled in for gas, and while Coaster filled their tank, Reigns popped the hood. Their sinister plan was already in motion. Danny Reigns unhooked one of the spark plugs, making the car sound like it had engine troubles so he could lure the girls into the mechanical bay to take a closer look. Once inside, the men pulled knives. Reigns told the women not to scream and they wouldn't be harmed. After ordering them into the back seat and tying them up, Reigns drove the car around back where the lights were off. One of them attended the store while the other kept watch on Claudia and Linda. Danny Reigns violently beat and raped both women in the van. According to Brent Coaster, he only raped Linda. When Reigns put Claudia back into the car, he told Coaster it was, quote, time to taste the medicine and ordered the younger man to kill her. Brent Coaster tried and failed to strangle Claudia with a rope. She was struggling and he couldn't finish the job. So Reigns helped him and they killed her together. Afterward, Coaster managed to strangle Linda by himself. The women were stuffed into the back seat of the Opal and covered with a blanket. While Danny Reigns watched the store, Coaster drove the car into the woods outside of Galesburg, poured gasoline all over the inside, lit a cigarette, took a few drags, put the cigarette on the floor of the car, and ran off before he knew whether the fire actually started. Coaster hitchhiked back to the station where Reigns showed off their loot. Some money, rings, a pair of earrings, a few pictures he had taken from the victims. It would be several weeks before police would find the bodies. The blanket left covering the victims became a key piece of evidence that connected Danny Reigns to their murder. On August 5th, the men claimed one more victim before their eventual capture. Pamela Fearnow was abducted while hitchhiking on Western Michigan University campus. There was nothing specific that made her a target aside from the fact she was walking alone and nobody was around. The men were out riding around, saw Pamela, picked her up, and immediately put a knife to her throat. Brent Coaster tied her up in the back of the van, covered Pamela with a sleeping bag, and lay next to her while Danny Rains drove the van into the woods. Not one of these women, not in any of her cases or stories, no, nobody asks for it, but not one of these women were doing anything but just living their lives. Just existing. They were just existing. No long-term planning aside from putting that kit together, no targeting. They were strangers, all of them, to these men. After abducting Pamela during a six-hour span, the men drank beer while raping her. Afterward, they drove to several other locations before stopping. Afraid of what was coming next, Pamela started struggling and screaming and fighting. Reigns punched her in the stomach and then Coaster suffocated Pamela Fearnow with a garbage bag over the head. Her body was carelessly dumped in the woods not far from the van. This is, this is why it's 
women have to calculate how they get from their car to a building. They have to calculate how they get from their garage to their house, how they have to get from point A to point B. You can fill in the blanks, but it's because of shit like this. You're exactly right. And this is really one of those early stories in which some of those stereotypes are built upon. I mean, they sabotaged their vehicle back when the, the days of the full service station. It was, it was such a plan. It's infuriating. And, and yet, as women, we get shit for being dramatic. Not by me, you don't. No. No. Thank, thank you for that. At some point... Throughout all this, Danny Rains wandered off. When he came back, Rains told Coaster that he'd been stopped by a police cruiser. The officer checked his ID and then let him go. Coaster panicked when he told him that and ran off into the woods. Evidently, Rains encountered that officer four more times during his drive through the woods back to the trailer where he and Coaster lived. Eventually, Coaster called Rains for a ride, got picked up, and the two went back and moved Pamela's body deeper into the woods the next day. In late August, Rains told Coaster they should steal a car and go to Florida. But Coaster suspected Danny meant to kill him and decided to get some distance from the older man. The two were finally arrested on September 4th. 1972 for the murders of Claudia Bidstrup and Linda Clark. Coaster readily admitted to the double homicide after being offered a deal in exchange for his testimony against Reigns. It wasn't until October that Coaster finally confessed to the killing of Pamela Fearnow and showed investigators where to find her. Pamela's body was dumped near Morrow Lake, less than a mile from where the other two victims were found. By that time, her remains were skeletal. Pamela was officially identified using her jawbone, although relatives confirmed a knee injury and several of Pamela's belongings that were found with the body. Danny Rains, meanwhile, insisted he was innocent. He first went to trial for the murder of Patricia Houck in 1973. Brent Coaster was the prosecution's star witness. Although Coaster was Obviously not a direct witness to the murder, the story he relayed to investigators matched all the physical evidence. Kathy Raines, Danny's former wife, corroborated the scratch, as did Raines' own mother, who openly admitted to suspecting her own son of killing Hauk. Well, your mom is usually the last one to turn on you. So if your mom turns on you, she hates your guts, buddy. Yeah, you, you done fucked up. Mm-hmm. Further evidence came from the jailhouse, but it wasn't a jailhouse confession or jailhouse Jesus. Not this time. Not this time. In this case, it was a toilet bowl note found in the shitter of Danny Rain's cell. <laughs> what did the shitbox note say? Well, I'm glad you asked. It outlined Danny's plan to recruit a strong woman alibi who could not be intimidated by police. Do tell what that is. What does that mean? (laughs) Someone that would go along with his whole bullshit story. That's it. Wow. Reigns received two convictions in this case. 
murder in the perpetration of rape, and second-degree murder receiving two life sentences without the possibility of parole. His next conviction came in the Pamela Fearnow trial. It went mostly the same as the previous one, but this time around, Danny Raines had tried to hire his cellmate to kill Brent Coaster. So we did get a jailhouse confession when that guy came and said, Hey, he tried to hire me as a hitman. Slice some time off my sentence. Danny Raines received a third life sentence. Finally, in August, he pleaded no contest to double homicide, adding two additional life sentences. Brent Coaster was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole, but also with the judge's recommendation of never being paroled. I thought that was weird because you're allowed to be sentenced with the possibility. But right on the same day, this judge announced that he said, look, don't ever let this guy out. He's like, don't. I know it says this, but don't. He was very clear. This means I have a question. Yeah. Uh, Unless things have changed, I'm pretty sure it's the judge who hands down the sentencing. It was. Okay. But he had second degree murder and with that automatically includes the possibility of parole, even if you do send... Thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. Okay. Good question. Okay. But he's like, yeah, okay. I get this guy made a deal and we have to charge him with second degree murder, even though he choked and raped three women. Sure. But he's testifying against the other guy. So we're going to just slide it down to second degree. Right. Maybe he gets parole one day, but but I don't recommend it. But that's the only reason why this guy got a lighter. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe because he was 15, I will say of the, you know, Brent Coaster, the 15 year old serial rapist and murderer, many felt this young man would never have escalated to that level of violence had Danny Raines not been there to manipulate him into it nearly twice this kid's age. So when Brent was asked why he participated in rape and murder on two occasions, he said, and I quote, there's a reason for everything, but I can't pin one on that. And I, to that, I say, fuck your reasons for everything. Well, all right. I think the judge is okay with that. Uh, yeah, I think, I think I agree with the judge there. Oh my. You know, sometimes you don't have to have an answer. You don't have to give an answer. Sometimes you can keep your mouth shut. It would have been better if he just kept his mouth shut there. Way better. Wow. In 1976, Danny's ex-wife, Kathy, became Mrs. Steppenwolf. Oh. Okay. Of course, this means that she married Danny's brother, a.k.a. Monk Steppenwolf. Mr. and Mrs. Monk Steppenwolf. Okay. Monk Steppenwolf, the sociopath formerly known as serial killer Larry Raines. Kathy did this in spite of him being in prison for life, fully believing he'd one day be free, even though his sentence came without the possibility of parole. Yeah. Delusional much? If you can believe this, the marriage didn't last. Please tell me she kept Steppenwolf. Please tell me she kept the last name. I don't know. 
The two were divorced before the end of the decade, and um, Monk Steppenwolf claimed he had a, a new wife in waiting. He was also disciplined in the late 70s for conspiring to kill another inmate. But wait. That tracks, I feel well, like. Well, it, it does. But he had a really good reason for this. He went on to tell reporters that prison system corruption was rampant. Inmates, himself included, had regular access to drugs while incarcerated. So he figured he could draw attention to those atrocities by doing prison murder. Uh, okay. What do you okay. think? The, the logic train is on the rails, right? Absolutely. 100%. I mean, whatever works. God. I mean, uh, how else can you draw attention to atrocities other than by doing murder? I mean, I'll give him credit for the name. I won't give him credit for brains. Meanwhile, Danny Raines continued the fight for his innocence. Raines dove into legal research and argued the two convictions in the Hauk case constituted double jeopardy. He was right. In 1979, one of the two convictions was canceled. Rain's legal battle didn't stop there. In 1981, the Supreme Court set aside the other conviction in the Hout case. It was ruled the trial judge failed to tell jurors they could consider second-degree murder as a possible verdict. This meant prosecutors could either retry Reigns or just give him a sentence of second-degree murder with the possibility of parole. Rather than go back to trial, prosecutors chose the latter option. With that, all but one of his sentences, the fear now conviction included the possibility of parole. Reigns continued to insist on his innocence and some researchers criticized the prosecution for so easily accepting Coaster's story. In his appeal for a new trial in the Fearnow case, Reigns argued his public defender had no murder trial experience and the court refused his request to get discovery. The appeal made its way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Where? It was rejected. Based on a lack of evidence, he was actually denied discovery. Danny Raines, like his brother, would never see the free light of day again. Nor should they. No. Do you want to know who else has no murder trial experience? Efforts Law Firm. Efforts Law Firm. That's right. <laughs> Should you ever need legal advice and you've perhaps murdered someone, don't call Efforts Law Firm. But I bet they can recommend you to someone. They could recommend you and they could help you expand your business and do other great lobbying things, but don't call her for murder. So the last time that Efforts Law Firm is ever going to sponsor that anything one was, ever I mean, again. All the, it was, they were all unplanned except for the first one, so that's what makes it great. Yeah. So is what is truly uncanny about the Reigns brothers 
isn't just that they're sibling serial killers, a rarity in and of itself, but these guys independently became serial murderers without ever conspiring with one another. It's one of the only instances in recorded history. Furthermore, they did this years apart, choosing different methods of murder, victims with entirely different profiles, and seemingly very different motives. Larry killed men, gas station attendants who reminded him of the violent father who abandoned, who abandoned and abused the family. Danny's crimes were sexually motivated, that both men were morally corrupted and violently supercharged by their upbringing is undeniable. But that alone doesn't turn someone into a killer. There's plenty of people with similarly awful childhoods who don't become serial killers. Many experts theorize the lifelong sibling rivalry motivated their crimes. But in my mind, if Danny really wanted to compete with his brother in such a way, why would he deny doing the murders? I'm not so sure competition with his brother was the only motivating factor. My own theory, I felt like Danny's motive to claim innocence was driven by two things. One, his verifiably psychopathic personality demanded that he attempt to manipulate and control the narrative. Two, committing murder and then getting away with it or beating the system was just another way for Danny Raines to prove himself superior to his brother. Furthermore, I found myself wondering, how much did Kathy play a role in Danny's victim choices? Kathy was the woman he married, the woman he believed chose him, the mother of his three children, but she always loved his brother more. I couldn't help but think that played into his choice. Kathy was still obsessed with Larry after he, be, after he became a killer, even after he became Monk Steppenwolf. Probably more so. Yeah. The things that must have done to Danny's already violently twisted mind, it's also likely Danny harbored a hatred toward his mother and blamed her for the abuse suffered at the hands of his father. But again... It's not as though every kid of violent, absent, shitty parents becomes a serial killer. Other times, as in the case of the Reigns brothers, the broken pieces of a violently shattered family are left to splinter out and destroy whatever they come in contact with. Pamela Fear now left behind an older and younger sister. Betty Shimel and Lori Locke. It didn't just change their lives. The murder of their sister completely altered the way they lived their lives. It changed how they raised children. Lori was 10 years old when it happened. She looked up to her older sister. After spending years in denial, Lori spent most of her life living in fear, afraid the same thing would happen to her. 
She wouldn't drive alone or go anywhere alone. She passed up all her big class trips, passed up several chances at traveling to Europe, and Lori went to school at a nearby community college. As a parent, she kept constant tabs on her kids. Eventually, later in her adult years, Lori was able to let go of the fear, but it ruled most of her life. Betty Shamel, the older sister, still holds on dearly to the memory of Pamela. A stack of letters that Pamela wrote to her while attending university are Betty's most sacred keepsakes. Pamela often babysat her nieces, Betty's children, and Betty was one of the last people to see Pamela before she was abducted. Shimel will never forget the police asking her to identify her sister's belt and sandals. When investigators asked if Pamela ever had a knee injury, Betty knew her sister's body was found. Claudia Bidstrup's parents were never the same after their daughter's murder. Her brothers Bill and Ron said that after Claudia's death, their mother never felt another day of peace in her life. To this very day, Bill and Ron struggle to find words fit to describe such senseless and devastating loss. How can you find the right words? It's not possible. <laughs> Neither Betty, Lori, nor the Bidstrups ever expected to see their family's killer set free. But the Michigan Parole Board saw fit to do just that in January of 2021. Ooh, I don't think I saw that coming. Brent Coaster, age 64, was released from prison after 48 years behind bars. He's required to serve an additional 48 months of parole. Coaster successfully completed a sex offender rehab program, earned a law degree, and had an exemplary prison record. Numerous high-ranking officials suggested Coaster is reformed and has shown considerable shame and remorse for his actions. One official believed Coaster would find quick, gainful employment as a skilled paralegal. Okay. In January of 2022, Danny Rains died in prison at the age of 78. Monk Steppenwolf, now 78 years old, currently remains imprisoned at the Saginaw Correctional Facility. He is not, nor ever will be, eligible for parole. Thoughts on his release? On Brent's? Yeah. We'd like to, I mean, people want to believe prisons are a place of possible reform. In a perfect world, they would be. That's the, that's, that's what they're supposed to be, but that's not what they are. Can a person actually be reformed? You know, the rate of recidivism, all that stuff. I mean, all that stuff plays a part. Wow, man. And that's our story, and it is so unique and disturbing and, and really profound in that, from my knowledge, this is the only time in recorded history where siblings independently became 
serial killers. And they didn't just become serial killers. Uh, they did it with different MOs. Yeah. Yeah, one was sexually motivated. One was one was uh, anti dad motivated. Yes. yes. Yeah. I, what What's the likelihood of, or the probability of siblings first becoming serial killers, but then to do it separately? Like, and there's some sort of mental disorder that each of them have, or created by their environment, to make them do this. Yeah, it's it's good points, and it brings up the nature versus nurture because there's there's numerous examples of children being raised amidst amidst violence who don't go on to become killers. Right. It's not, it's not like these things happen like a domino effect. Like just because you were raised violently, you don't go on to become a killer, let alone a serial killer. And in other instances where family or siblings became killers, it was done together. Mm -hmm. Um, It was either in a moment or they planned it together. Yeah, like one of them was talking to the other one, like, hey, we should do this. And there might have been a a mastermind or something like that. But yeah, that's that's wild to me. The Reigns brothers never shared a conversation about becoming killers. I mean, in, in, in many regards, there was nothing but there's a lot of resentment between the two and the love triangle um, that they that they shared. So it. Well, and you you'd made the comment, too, that that the one brother was trying to, you know, out impress or or uh, stand out against the other brother. And I'm I'm curious, like what's going on in that guy's brain and that brother's brain to think that he can outshine the other brother or be the most successful brother by being a worse person. Like that's not, that's not Ooh. the, that's not the common thinking. No, Don, it feels icky. Right. You could not murder and outshine your brother. Yeah. You could outshine your brother by becoming rich and successful and reputable and yeah. well-liked. Yeah. Not, not, not yeah. more hated. No, I want to be more hated. Go volunteer at a hospital or, you know, a animal shelter, but no murder other people. I it's, this is, this is weird to me, man. Like I don't quite get it. <laughs> I don't, I don't get it at all. I, the, the amount of pain that they caused. It's chilling and it's, it's creepy and it's a massively studied and researched case because of that, that them independently becoming serial killers. The other follow-up question I just wanted to touch on real quick. I got hung up a little bit researching this story because of that roadblock and the failure to search or check Larry Rain's vehicle. Now I realize that Everything that Larry Raines had done was already done. Catching him at the roadblock was not going to prevent any further crime. So at least he didn't get through a roadblock and then kill more people. Excellent so point. Yeah. That, that's that's it's mm-hmm. give credit and recognition for that. But I guess I was wondering if if you are setting up a roadblock, should you not just search every single vehicle that comes through there? Isn't that the point of the roadblock? Well, I think, you know, you you search the suspicious vehicles, right? That's what that was the instruction. Yes. Oh, isn't that subjective? Very subjective. What I think is suspicious isn't what you think is suspicious. So I I think that that is, uh, yeah, I mean, I understand that timing and all of that stuff and manpower and all of those things are going to, um, you know, cause issues for that. But if you can save another life, isn't it worth it? I think. 
Possibly, know. Uh, you know, I, I know, and there's 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 a lot to be, I, I suppose, debated about the constitutional legality of roadblocks and searching and sure. stopping and searching yeah, every vehicle, there's and and I'm not saying I'm all for about. that. Yeah. No, for sure, there's there's probably implications, but in my mind, I'm like, well, okay, you set up a roadblock hours later, you you this guy got through your roadblock a couple miles down from where you you found a, a, a dead body that was still warm, you know. That's that's how timely you were with the roadblock. And again, they caught the guy. So all's well right. that ends well. Right. He didn't kill anybody after that. But it, it but. just seemed like an ineffective, like, what's the point of the roadblocks if that's how we're going to do it? It's open to interpretation. Um, yeah. I, like you said, the suspicion subjective. is so subjective. Either do them or don't. Like, do them properly or don't. I mean, within the confines of the law, of course. Yeah. Um, but I think just, you know, telling your, telling your officers to just, you know, look for the suspicious ones. That... Uh, you got to be better than that. Yeah, you I be better than that. I agree. This case was a doozy, man. Absolutely weird and wild and tragic. The sources for this one, numerous court documents from the state of Michigan, People versus Reigns, The World Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, Volume 3 by Susan Hall, Larry and Danny Reigns, Serial Killers in the Same Family by Catherine Ramsland, uh, numerous M.Live articles by John Agar, and much of the information here must also be credited to Conrad Hilberry. Hilberry, a writer, researcher, and journalist who lived in the area where this happened, wrote the book Luke Karamazov. Hilberry spent significant time interviewing each brother in prison. He also interviewed Kathy at length. Wow. Our timeline came from onthisday.com and Baby Boomers. Dot com. Yeah, Hillberry was not somebody who did true crime research. He sure. just so happened to live in the area and said, you know, I have time. I think I should learn more about this. And it kind of opened up a pretty big can of worms yeah. for him, much more than he ever suspected would happen. And looking back at it, a lot of modern researchers wish that he had been able to work with researchers of that era to ask the those more psychologically scientific sure. questions of trying to learn more about these serial killer well, brothers. Well, and, and I don't know, I think why, why? <laughs> right. Oh, it's, it's always, it's, it's always the question. It, well, yeah, it is always the question, but dang. Yeah. This episode was written by Jonah Lanto. It's uh, co-hosted Midwest murder by uh, Don Palumbo and myself produced by the Good Talk Network and the last little chunk of this was re-recorded in studio after a medical incident at the end of our live Bismarck show. So if you notice a little bit of difference in the audio there, that's why. Thank you. Thank you.